thing to stand. You stand for the reading of God's word this morning, which is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Philippians 3, verses 1 to 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I had, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead." This church is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that your word divides between soul and spirit and joint and marrow. That brings life to our weary and tired and sinful souls. Lord, that you would revive us. Through your word, by the power of your spirit, that your word would fall on, the seed of your word would fall on fertile soil and produce an abundant crop for your glory. So we pray you would bless now the preaching of your word and we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I grew up here. In South Africa, like I think most of us, exception of Brendan, <laughs> and during the 1980s and, and the 1990s, in fact, yeah, right here in, in this, this suburb, and I remember my school days at Forest View Primary School, which is literally a couple of hundred meters on this very road, and I have very fond memories of primary school. I remember that, that we would sing Christian hymns that we would pray every assembly and the principal would, would teach Bible stories to us. And, and even in class, as a part of the curriculum, the, the, the Bible uh, was taught as the word of God. Um, and in Christianity, the Christian faith was, 
was explicitly taught um, as a part of the curriculum that we called it in those days Christian national education. And at that time, it was just considered normal. And it was assumed, I suppose, that, well, everyone was Christian, unless you were a Jehovah Witness, and then you would set out, you'd have to set outside during assembly. But other than that, everyone was, you know, you're a Christian, right? And most people went to church, and, and even if they went um, occasionally or perhaps not at all, they are still identified in some way with, with Christianity. And so there was a, a strong cultural Christianity in our context. It was really the, the, the air that, that we breathed, and it certainly affected our, our values and our morality and our outlook on life. And in, in many ways, we're still breathing in this cultural Christ, Christianity air today. Yeah, and... Let me say, there's certainly benefits to this. However, there's a deep underlying flaw. And what this flaw is, is that it lulls people into a false sense of security. As people believe that they are Christians by virtue of the culture into which they are born. And people tend then to believe that, that they are good with God because they're living some kind of a moral life and that they are relatively good people. Now, not much actually has changed over the years. And in fact, in the, the church of Philippi was facing a similar problem. Hey, they were facing false teachers, the, the Judaizers, and this group was influencing the church and teaching that there was, there was some benefit before God to being ethnically Jewish. That, that God required that Gentile converts to Christianity had to, in essence, become culturally Jewish. And that God required Gentile uh, converts to, to start observing the, the Jewish ceremonial laws like circumcision and dietary prohibitions and started observing all the, the Jewish festivals. And so they, they, they taught that while they were certainly saved by God's grace, they had to stay in through this continual obedience to, to the law. Now, in this passage that we're going to look at this morning, Paul confronts this heresy head on. And he exposes this false teaching for what it is, and that is, it is an aberration of the true gospel. Because you're going to see that it, it, there's nothing about our heritage, nothing about our culture, nothing about our own sense of morality or, or righteousness that contributes to our standing before God. Instead, what we're going to see through this text is that one thing... And one thing alone matters, and that is being found in Christ and clothed in his righteousness that depends on faith. So let's get into two points this morning. Firstly, no confidence in the flesh, and secondly, righteousness from God. So first off, no confidence in the flesh from verse 1. 
Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So now Paul starts off this letter by encouraging the Philippians to to rejoice in the Lord. Why does he start this way? Well, remember our context. Remember what we looked at last week. Um, End of Philippians chapter 2 is Paul telling the Philippian church that he's about to send them um, Timothy and Epaphroditus um, to minister to the church and they're going to be a great encouragement to them. So there's, they should rejoice in that gift, those two, these two gifts of, of these men that are, that are coming to, to minister to the church. But the, cho- the tone then changes almost immediately as we move to to verse 2. And so verse 2 says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Yeah, there's, a, there's a stark contrast that Paul has, has created. On one hand, there's, <coughs> excuse me, there's joy on the one hand about these brothers who are coming to serve the church. But then on the other hand, Paul issues a stern warning about false teachers. And so Paul's using a shock tactic here to, to make his point. And he, he calls these false teachers dogs. Now, I must understand from the ancient world, this is not a term of endearment. Yeah, we think, oh, cute little dogs, our pets, oh, they just love you and all that. But the ancient world, uh-uh. When they understood dogs, they understood them as being dirty scavengers who would go and eat kind of rotting food on the side of the road. They weren't household pets. They were seen as unclean. And um, not only are these false teachers, does Paul call them dogs, but he says that these are people who actively perpetrate evil. They're intentionally leading people astray. They've got bad intention. They're not just sort of, you know, a bit confused about something. No, they know what they're doing. And what they're doing is evil. And not only that, but Paul calls them mutilators of flesh. And he is, in the Greek, it's a play on words. Because this, the word mutilators for flesh and the word circumcision sound very much the same. He's trying to make a, a link there. So he's bringing to mind um, a, a pagan practice of self-harm that was afflicted to the body. And he's saying that their version of circumcision is, bears no resemblance to true circumcision. It's actually, he's likening it more to a, a, a pagan practice, disconnected from God's intention of it. So who then are these false teachers that Paul describes in such shocking terms? Well, as already hinted in in the introduction, these are the the Judaizers. This movement in the early church which idolized Jewish culture and ethnicity and they sought to force Gentile converts to Christianity to become culturally Jewish through obedience to the ceremonial laws um, in the mosaic, of the Mosaic Covenant. And so they taught that you were in by grace and then you continue through obedience to the law. Now, Paul has no time for these false teachers. It must be clear, he doesn't even regard them as true believers. And it's clear from 
his description of them in, in, in verse 2. Okay, the, the calling someone a dog, you know, he's not, these are not brothers in Christ. And he's being very open about that. Now, the, the irony is that the, the, the Judaizers consider themselves pure be, precisely because of their ethnicity. And they, they regard themselves as good and ritually clean because of their, their external obedience to the law through practices like circumcision. But in Paul's eyes, they're actually the very opposite. Yeah, they're unclean. They're evil. They're performing aberrations of true circumcision. And in his letter to the Galatians, Paul addresses the, 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 the very same false teachers, the Judaizers, and he calls them out for in Galatians 1, verse 6 and 7, he calls them out for preaching a different gospel, a distortion of the gospel of Christ. And verse 3 continues, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So while the Judaizers consider themselves to be God's true covenant people, the true Israel, by virtue of their culture and ethnicity and the outward observance of the law, and Paul calls that confidence in the flesh, Paul now, he, he turns the tables around here and he says, no, it actually it's, it's we who trust in Christ, we are the true Israel. Hey, we are God's true covenant people. And that's what he's saying when he, he says here, for we are the circumcision. You see, true circumcision, even for Israel in the Old Testament, was not just simply a mark on the body. But its purpose was to point to the work of the Holy Spirit in removing the, the, the sinful old man the heart of stone, and transforming it into a heart of flesh, becoming a new creation. It is pointing towards regeneration. Because it's only through being born again by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can truly worship and glory in Christ. And you, you, you can't do that through our own fleshly achievements by virtue of our culture. Those things can't Work in us regeneration. <clears throat> now I'm sure you've been you've been following the the news, global news, and, and seeing the, the tragedies that have been unfolding in in Israel. And it's certainly legitimate for us to, from a political perspective, to to sympathise with the modern state of Israel and and their right to defend themselves against frankly, bloodthirsty, evil terrorists. But let us not be confused into thinking that they are God's people simply by virtue of their race. This New Testament teaches abundantly clearly, and here's an example in this scripture, that there is only one people of God, the new Israel. The church. And that is Jew and Gentile who believe in Christ for salvation alone. 
So verses 4 to 6 continue. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So now Paul's trying to drive his point home, saying that you know, these Judaizers who think they you know, got all the credentials and you know, they're right in God's eyes because of their, their culture, he said, well, actually, you know, well, well if you, you want to talk about credentials. Okay, let's talk about credentials. And then he, he, he gives us his CV. And he's, he's telling, he demonstrates, well, he's the model Jew. Okay, he's, he's got abundant reasons to find his confidence in the flesh. And of all people, he's the one who's ticked all the boxes. He's meticulously, meticulously observed the law outwardly. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He's a pure-blooded ethnic Jew, a physical offspring of Abraham. He's not some lowly Gentile convert to Judaism. I mean, he's the real deal. He's a savior Jew. And he's from the, the tribe of Benjamin. Yeah, Benjamin, that's, uh, that's the important thing. The, these are the, tri- the tribe of Benjamin, they were the only t- tribe who remained loyal to, to Judah after the kingdom divided um, after King Solomon. The, the, the rest of the ten tribes apost- went into apostasy in the north under Jeroboam. But the, Benjamin was loyal. And he's a Pharisee. Yeah, there's a stream of, of Judaism which prided itself on the, stri- to the strictest observance of the law. And then he was also zealous for Judaism and that he, he persecuted heretics. Yeah, we, we, the church, we viewed at that time as the enemies of God. And then in his own eyes, he considered himself righteous due to his blameless outward observance to the law. Those bring us to, to the second point from verse 7. So though Paul is, is the Jew of Jews, he's ticked all the right boxes. He's shown that he's got the, the perfect credentials according to the flesh. He carries on verse 7. He says, but whatever gain I have, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. The thing is, Paul came to realize this truth in a very deeply personal way. I mean, on his way to, to slaughter Christians because of his zeal for Judaism, what happened to him? Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus Road in Acts 9. And when Jesus appeared to him, he didn't have a look at Paul's long list of credentials and say, oh, wow, Paul, I'm so impressed at, at all this, this stuff. Well, in fact, his, his first words to Paul were, why are you persecuting me? It's Acts 9 verse 4. So according to his flesh, according to his own sense of righteousness, Paul was found wanting. He was found to be an enemy of God. 
He was dead in his sins and deserving of God's just, just wrath. But Christ found him. He had mercy on him. He poured out on him grace upon grace and forgave his sins, clothed him in the righteousness of Christ, gave him a new heart by the power of his spirit. And this is precisely why Paul now declares that whatever supposed gain he had, whether it was his ethnic background, his culture, his good morals, his, his good works, actually he counts all of that as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. And in fact, he continues in verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. So Paul reiterates again that his prestigious lineage, his confidences in his own sense of goodness and righteousness, these things are nothing to him. And in fact, he considers them, verse 8, Rubbish. Now, I was understand that's from a Greek word, skubala. That's the only word, only time it's used in the New Testament here. And it's an extremely strong word, shall we say. It's so strong and shocking that the translators of the Bible have smoothed it over. Okay, the, the King James Version, it, it's translated as dung. Okay, so it, it, what it really means, the, the politest way I can say this, is it means excrement. And it would have been as shocking as that. It was kind of a borderline, you know, a, a swear word that you would have used there to create a sense of, of, of shock. And the point is that Everything else is, fill in the word, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So why does he count all of this as rubbish? Why is he so extreme? Why is he so black and white about it? Can't he at least appreciate the, the benefit before God of, of just a bit of his cultural heritage or just a bit of his sense of, of righteousness? No. And the reason why he counts it all as rubbish is, verse 8 continues to say, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, like Paul, we too need to have this perspective of our own supposed merits if we truly to grasp the significance of what Christ has done for us and the beauty of the gospel. Now, like Paul... The truth is that we bring absolutely nothing to the table. That we contribute absolutely nothing to our salvation because it is an 
entirely the sovereign work of God. Now, we may think that God is impressed with our Christian credentials and our works of of righteousness. But before him, they are, as Isaiah 64, verse 6, they polluted garments. If you look, take the Hebrew literally, it means that they are used menstrual cloths. Now it's, and it's often, it, it's hard, can be hard for us, for those of us who, especially who've grown up in, in a culturally Christian context, to, to grasp us. Because our, our default setting is that we tend to think, well, we're pretty decent people. Yeah, well, we, we're not like you know, those murderers and all that out there. You know, we you know, got it together. We're uh, an obedient citizen. We, we outwardly uh, um, obey according to our own sense of, of morality. But before God himself, okay, like Paul was on the way to Damascus, the reality is, okay, thanks to... Thanks to Adam, our, our first parent, but also because of our own willful sin, we are found seriously wanting. Because God sees beyond the outward appearance and looks straight into the depths of our hearts. And the reality in the light of God's presence, our hearts, as Jeremiah 17 verse 9, are deceitful. Above all things, and desperately sick. And from our hearts, Jesus says in Matthew 15, 19, from our hearts come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And so this is precisely why Romans 3, 10 to 11, which quotes from Psalm 14, declares that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Well, if that's the case then, well then who can possibly get right with God? If nothing we can do, to, that, that can help us to gain any favor with God, then what hope do, do any of us possibly have? Well, on our, on our own, frankly, there is no hope. And so this is exactly why Paul emphasizes throughout this text that we should have no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in our own sense of righteousness, which is really no righteousness at all. But instead, what Paul does is that he lifts our eyes up to Christ. Verse 9, that we may gain Christ and be found in him. Just as he was found by Christ while he was still his enemy. And Paul received this undeserved sovereign grace. And being found in him, not trusting in our own righteousness, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
See, the truth is that every single one of us is unable to perfectly keep the righteous requirements of the law. We all fail, and there are no exceptions to this. There are no exceptions, but one. There's only been one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who has faithfully obeyed the entirety of, of God's law, not just in an external obedience sense, but from the heart. All his thoughts, his words, and indeeds throughout his time on earth, Jesus obeyed the Father, obeyed the law. And in doing so, this makes him to be the only truly righteous one, the only one who in himself is completely righteous. And the beauty of the gospel is that God grants this righteousness that belongs only to Christ. The righteousness of God, which Paul calls it here, he grants this righteousness to us. Romans 5, 19 says, For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made sinners. Righteous. So, brothers and sisters, it's not that we become righteous in ourselves. Because our lived reality is that we still wrestle with sin every day, even as believers. But it's that God counts or imputes Christ's righteousness to us. He clothes us in a righteousness that is not of ourselves. Or as as Luther would say, it is an an alien righteousness. In order that we are then able to enter the presence of God. Not on our own terms, but clothed in Christ. Having our sins forgiven. And having Christ's righteousness credited to us. Clothed in Christ's righteousness. As the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer 60 declares... God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Listen to this. This is incredible. As if I had never sinned, nor been a sinner, and as if I had been perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. I mean, that is incredible. got massive implications. And it's this incredible truth that if we are found in Christ, if we are clothed in, righteous, in his righteousness, then this means that we can truly know God. Because he treats us not as our sins deserve, but actually he treats us just as if we have never sinned nor been a sinner but instead, he treats us as if we have, like Christ, obeyed the entirety of the law. And so this is exactly why in Christ, Romans 8 verse 1 declares, there is now no more condemnation. Because God does not relate to us as our sins deserve, but he relates to us for the sake of the righteousness of Christ. And then how? Do we receive this righteousness from God? Through having ticked all the boxes? Through our good works? Absolutely not. Verse 9 tells us that we receive 
it as a free gift of grace through faith in Christ. Hey, this righteousness from God that depends on faith alone. The Heidelberg Catechism question and answer 60 carries on and expresses it like this. All I need to do is to accept this gift of God with a believing heart. And then what is the result of receiving this righteousness from God through faith? Well, verse 10, verse 10 and 11 continue. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So forgiven of your sins, clothed in Christ's righteousness, we are now able to enter the presence of God, reconciled to him as his own sons in order to know Christ, to be united to him in faith, to know his love and his faithfulness and his steadfast love. And you see, it's from having received Christ by faith, being united to him, that the desire to glorify Christ flows naturally. It's a fruit of having received grace. See, good works flow from believing the gospel, but they don't in any way contribute to our salvation. But the text also tells us that united to Christ also means that we share in his sufferings. And that we will endure trials for his sake. And it's through these trials that the Lord promises to sanctify us and draw us closer to him. That ultimately, our union with Christ will mean that one day we will share in the power of Christ's resurrection. That for Christians, death is not the end for us if we are in Christ. If we're united to him now, he has promised, unbreakable covenant promise that he will raise us up on the last day in new resurrection bodies just like his where we will dwell with him forever in the new creation. So bringing this all to a close, what we need to understand, brothers and sisters, is that before God, our cultural Christianity our Christian heritage or even our ethnicity or our supposed righteous acts, these things all count for nothing. And if we hold on to these things, thinking that in any way they can make us right with God, well, actually, we we are deluded. Because one day we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and there on that day, there's only one thing that will count, and that one thing is that we know Him and that we are found in Him in His righteousness that depends on faith. So, brothers and sisters, trust in Jesus Christ alone, everything else is rubbish, and trust in Christ that you may gain Him and be found. In him and receive the forgiveness of your sins. Receive a righteousness that is not of your own, but the righteousness that is from God. And trust in Christ and be counted 
as God's own covenant people, the true Israel, true sons of Abraham, and know him and be raised in him to eternal life on the last day. Amen. Let's pray.